Hi there, my name is Sam Sheen, and I'm joined as always by my friend and professional colleague, Mary Lindbergh, and this is our podcast, Captivated Audience. Today's guest comes to us from the UK, and it's David Buxton. David, how are you doing today? I'm very good, thank you, Sam. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, where you work and your role with the organization? Sure. So I'm the CEO and, for my sins, the founder of Arachnus, and we're a single data gateway for all the information that organizations need in order to make confident compliance decisions in both anti-money laundering and AML and in KYC, Know Your Customer. So if you could break it down for the less tech-savvy compliance types, what does that mean exactly? I guess the way that a lot of organizations look at it is when they think about the information they need to understand their customers. In an ideal world, they would just buy a data feed that told them all and only the things that they need to know, right? For regulatory purposes, for risk purposes, etc. Unfortunately, we live in the real world where we have a complex set of questions that we need to answer as for both um, onboarding and for investigative purposes in the context of AML. The answers don't all sit in one place. We are still a couple of steps short of world government. And so we have lots of different countries, lots of different languages, lots of different legal systems and ways of doing things, regulatory bodies, et cetera. And all of these organizations, all of these jurisdictions create different data sets, which have to be queried individually. And so what we're doing is we're basically creating a consolidated single source of truth for both anti-money laundering and know your customer. David, can you tell us more about the different data sources and the information that you collect and use? So that's, let me just take you through the sort of spectrum of different types of data sources. So if you start at one end of the spectrum, if you think about the kind of first step in the customer lifecycle, what you're typically thinking about is the know your customer, the onboarding process. And at that stage, what you're typically looking to interrogate are sources of official corporate information, which tell you things like, does a legal entity exist? What is a person's role in relationship to a legal entity? Where is it physically registered, et cetera, right? Who owns it? Who are the ultimate beneficial owners? So that's sort of the hard company information. And there, what you're typically trying to do is fill in a customer information profile. If you move more towards the sort of ongoing relationship with the customer, and when you're thinking about the risk posed by that customer, you're looking at screening type information. And there, our customers are typically looking to answer questions like, you know, are there obvious reasons that I should feel wary about my relationship with this customer? Does it have a problematic regulatory status? Is it in a business line that I find, you know, morally, legally problematic? So there you're looking at kind of more reputational data points. You might be looking at regulatory sources, you might be looking at media. Then if you sort of move further into that process, you might be thinking about how do I monitor this customer on an ongoing basis for issues that come up? So I'm maybe looking at things that are constantly updated. So I might be looking at regulatory, but I also might be looking at media again. And then finally, as you start to sort of spot issues, you typically want to validate those issues. And so you also want deep dive access to the actual underlying you know, litigation resources, for example, NGOs, anything that can give you that kind of extra level of detail on major reputational issues, major compliance issues. Can you walk us through the three C's, capture, curate, and connect? Well, let me just talk to you about the kind of pillars of data collection as we see them. So we think about there being basically four different ways that we can provide customers with data. The first thing we, we do is we harvest a lot of information from the open internet and from some very specialist places on the internet in about 98 languages um, across you know, all the jurisdictions on earth. So that is sanctions, watch lists, media, typically reputational type information. 
So we think of that as captive data. That's information that we have and we can analyze and sits within our own databases. The second type of information is we have a very large set of partners who themselves are going through some sort of similar process, right? They might be buying information from governments. They might be distilling information from sort of bigger data sets. And so what that looks like is a range of relationships with corporate data providers. That looks like the usual players that you would see, like Bureau Van Dyke, Dun & Bradstreet, Dow Jones, Thomson Reuters, as was Refinitiv, other niche providers of things like shipping data in some situations or litigation data. And so we have a huge range of data partners there, and we can federate all of those providers through our systems. The third pillar is what we think of as cloud robotic process automation. And so these are basically bots that enable us to interact with any website on the internet as if it's a human. So in response to a specific query, we can basically take any website and turn it into an API. And so that gives you access to the kind of long tail of regulatory and government type information. You know, a good example might be in Mexico, for example, it's possible to query the central bank to find out if you have a money transfer license or an FX license. You know, that just isn't the sort of data set that like the big boys, as it were, are really putting a lot of effort and time into making available as like, you know, this is a proper commercial service. But if you have a process which depends on you actually checking that, it's a big blocker if you need to like send someone off right, and do that. And then the final step, as we see it, is desktop RPA. So being able to put a little bot on users' desktops to actually enable them to automate really tough tasks that require like fine-grained analyst interaction. So a good example is taking a, like a scanned PDF or something that has shareholder information in it, let's say, or information about market cap or free float or something, which is sometimes filed in annual reports, and actually taking that and extracting that, tagging that data, and so making that available in a structured format in a way which sometimes requires a little bit of analyst intervention and analyst fact-checking. So those are the sort of four data pillars. Okay, well, let's just build on that. So let's, what does that mean in terms of processing? One way of working with this is that you can just connect to this raw data, right, through our API. And so, you know, some organizations want to drink through the fire hose. The way I look at the KYC and AML markets more generally is that you really have three sort of buckets that solutions fall into. You've got workflow platforms which take you as a customer through a process. You click the call to action on the JP Morgan website and like at the end of that process, you get shipped a debit card. What happens in the middle is super complicated, but from your point of view as a consumer, like virtual website leads to something turning up in the mail, number one. The second is like analytics solutions. So that's basically saying, I've got too much of something, typically data, and I think there's something useful in there. I think there's a signal, but I can't do it just with humans or it's too expensive for me to do it with humans. So I'm gonna buy some software that helps me distill some sort of insight from this mass of data. And then finally, you know, where we are is very much in the kind of data space, talking about how do we actually get the best information into that analytics process, into that workflow process, so that the workflow process can proceed uninterrupted, it can straight through process stuff, et cetera, and the analytics process can actually like give you a useful answer. It's all very well for you to have the best analytics engine in the world, but if you're ultimately feeding it with poor quality data, you're like that bad joke about the, you know, the guy looking for his um, car keys under the lamp because that's where the light is rather than that's where he lost them. So you might want to consume data through, in it's more or less raw format through an API. And the thing you want to avoid is basically every time you have some new piece of information which you need either for your process or you have some new signal, some new feature as they call them, right, which might be useful as part of your analytics process, having to build another integration, having to work out how to sort of like map the different parts of the data into your model, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we can provide that raw access to data. David, I understand there are also other functionalities your technology offers. 
We also have some basic products that allow you to perform common tasks. For example, a customer information profile and a UBO um, ownership structure, right? So that's our spotlight product. So that we see as a curation tool. We're basically saying, here, we've got these APIs. You can plug them together in this way and you end up with a process which like starts with basically a name and a bit of contextual information and ends up with a fully fledged profile with all of the different data points connected to their evidence, et cetera. And in an AML context, we have something similar, a navigator product, which automates the process from end to end of handling the entity enrichment part of an AML investigation. So in AML, you've got two parts. You've got the transaction context, but you've also got the entities. And typically, both of those things are really relevant. Transaction patterns give you a context as to typologies and risk, but actually you really can't understand what's going on unless you understand you know, the entity's concern. And so what we have is the ability to ask very specific questions of those entities and guide a user through the obtaining of that information, right, in order to answer those questions to your satisfaction and, and risk assess a, a situation. You mentioned structured data. Let's talk about the challenges then. Duplication, aggregation, false positives, etc. How does your software deal with those issues and risks? There's two different contexts of structured data, right? One is in a KYC context, you're typically trying to find the thing, right? Or the set of information that's necessary to satisfy your process requirements. And so there, false positives typically isn't the issue. There can be situations where it's difficult to identify the right information. But typically, the bigger problem that you have is actually not that you get too much information back and you have to sift through it. It's that you actually cannot get the right information. Like, here is a new entity that I'm onboarding. It's registered in the Cayman Islands. I want to know who the shareholders are. Well, good luck with that. That is not a false positive problem, right? If you think about the other sort of quote-unquote structured data issues that you have, we do see pretty major problems with customers around false positives, especially as regards relates to watch lists and um, sanctions lists and so on. Those are really interesting to me because... The question you're really trying to answer, if you think about it almost from a mathematical point of view, is you're trying to line up your own knowledge of your customer or counterparty with the lists, entity, whatever is stored on the list, yeah? And you're trying to say, to what extent can I tell for sure that this is not the same thing? Normally, you're not able to say for, for sure that this is the same thing, right? Because there's always this like small probability, especially automatically, that, that there could, it's just someone with the same name or whatever. But what often happens is basically, I think, two things. One is you don't know yourself enough about the customer or the counterparty in order to definitively say that, no matter how good the data is on the other side of that, right? So the guy's called John Smith. I've got no idea where he lives, except it's like America. And, you know, there's a guy called John Smith on this list. And so it is just going to match every single person that we know in the entire universe called John Smith. And there is a logical sense in which, like, if you are following a process, you actually just can't change that. The other interesting failure case, though, that we do think is solvable is that a lot of these lists just don't include enough information for you to rule out matches even when the match on the other side is good, right? So even when you do have information on your customer account party. So it's kind of like just flipping around that situation, right? If you can imagine it. Um, all the list says is like, hey, John Smith was suspected of like terrorist offenses or something. And so you just end up with every single John Smith, no matter how well you know them, potentially matching that. And to be totally honest, the best solution that I've ever heard of in that particular area is a really boring one, which is something that someone at one of the world's largest banks told me they actually did, which is that they they took the like two top 200 profiles from their watch list provider, right? That they found problematic. They were getting the highest false positive rates against. And they literally basically went through these profiles and they systematically themselves rebuilt these profiles with way more detail so that they could disqualify. They could basically like declare a mismatch between different profiles where they had previously been unable to. 
But Marie and I have talked to a number of people about the problem around unstructured data. Can you talk to us a little bit about that point? The problem gets even more difficult when you're talking about unstructured data sources. You know, for example, in the UK, I don't know if you have the same thing in Sweden, but in the UK, when, when newspapers report on a criminal offence, typically, or a conviction, right, or a trial, they will normally give the age of the person in question in the article itself. And the reason for doing that is actually British libel law, which means that you can libel someone of the same name if, if you don't sort of like, as it were, qualify them out. But normally newspapers don't do that. So when, typically when they're commenting on things that don't rise to the status of being like a full criminal trial or conviction, right? There's tons of situations in which, for example, a company has done something reasonably dodgy and, you know, the director is accused of something. You know, give the director's name, age, you know, they're certainly not going to give his birthday. So you can, as a human, you can kind of go back and be, well, if he's 57 in 2017, then, you know, he's going to be 60 now. So he was born roughly in this bracket. You can do that, but it's very difficult to extract automatically that kind of structured context from unstructured data. And often it's just not there in the first place. So what's potentially the impact of those unstructured data challenges? When we're thinking about unstructured data, the false positives problem becomes much more difficult. And we rely much more on the relationships, for example, that entities have between each other and whether or not you can kind of match those relationships in the unstructured data. We rely on signals like geographical location, especially when you're talking about people, because they like physically tend to be in one place or another. When you're trying to develop really interesting technology to solve that problem these things are are sort of they're like the limiting factors and you know i can remember when i was an investigator actually myself i remember the very first task that i got tasked with was to actually prove that we had provided a report to a customer and in that report we'd said that we didn't think there were any issues associated with the person but they had turned up a newspaper report in russian with someone of the same name who was accused of murder and my very first job was to prove that this guy wasn't the murderer and in fact, we hadn't considered this piece of information. It was possible as a human by making some reasonable inferences. You know, this person had a child of this age, and so that meant that he was probably, you know, let's call it at least 16 years-ish older. It was possible by making some reasonable inferences to say, we're like really 99% sure this is not the same person. But that took a human to kind of understand, you know, things like, you know, concepts like reproductive age, which I think even the very most sophisticated models that you develop are unlikely to explicitly encode that. And that's the end of part one of our podcast with David Buxton of Arachnus. Stay tuned for part two, where we'll continue our discussion and talk about all things data, KYC, and the wonderful world of AML. If you have any ideas or suggestions you'd like to make for future podcasts, feel free to reach out to us on our dedicated LinkedIn page, Captivated Audience, or reach out to us on our website, captivatedaudience.eu, which will have to be quick because shortly we'll be heading off on our summer break, but we'll be back in action in September. Until then, have a great day and stay safe. There'll be some change.